You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, we could not talk about the adventure of work that God gives each and every one of us without passing through the book of Esther. And this morning, we look at the life of a young woman, a Jewish woman, to draw three lessons about our work, whatever that might be. You know, uh, Esther had a very hard kingdom assignment. She was, first of all, married to a very difficult man, to say the least. I don't know if any of you are married to Xerxes, um, but you may get close. Esther was there. She also was a queen in a foreign regime uh, that was oftentimes very brutal. Work was hard for Esther. It wasn't the the delights of the throne. It wasn't uh, the joys of this bedroom that made her work meaningful. What allowed Esther to love her job was the knowledge that God was working his purpose in and through her life. And I think it's important for us to get the lessons of Esther because each and every one of us at some point in time, if not this morning, will wake up and have the feeling that we are in the wrong place at the wrong time doing the wrong thing. And Esther, in those places and times, gets a glimpse. God peels back the curtain and shows her what he's doing in and through her work. She's not the only one that can have this glimpse. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, verse 10 says, We, that is the followers of Jesus Christ, we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul's saying God has set this up for you, just like he set this up for Esther. Wherever you are this morning, you, like Esther, face a defining moment. There's nothing in your past that could screw it up. In Jesus Christ, God's purposes are ready for your work. So I'd like to invite you to pull out uh, your Bible and open up to Esther chapter 4. you find this on page 388 of the Pew Bible. Our text is Esther 4, verses 9 all the way down to the bottom, verse 17. Esther there is just uh, kind of hit Psalms and go left. And I'll give you a little pronunciation alert here. we got Persian names. And remember, whenever you don't know how to pronounce a name, they teach you in seminary, just go... So that will work. But we're going to meet Hathak and Mordecai and Haman in this text. If you're able, would you stand with me and let's read God's word aloud together. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a message for Mordecai, saying, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. All alike are to be put to death. Only if the king holds out the golden scepter to someone may that person live. I myself have not been called to come in to the king for 30 days. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think that in the king's palace you will escape 
any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. But you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. After that, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Lord, we invite you to speak by your spirit this morning. We, by this prayer, give you permission to speak your purpose into our life. To open our hearts and make us obedient and faithful in response. For you, you alone have the words of eternal life. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to uh, review with you the story of Esther. If you don't know the story, you've got to go and read it on your own. This is one of the best reads in the Bible, the book of Esther. And then I'd like to draw three lessons for our work, for our lives uh, from this story. The story of Esther is not a story that occurs in Israel like so many of the Bible stories. It occurs in Persia, modern-day Iran. And it occurs late in the biblical history. This is just a generation before Ezra and Nehemiah, the end of the Old Testament. And uh, the, the period is pretty easy to mark because there's a king in the story, and his reign is 486 to 465 uh, B.C. We're told we're just a couple of years into his reign, and this king is no small-town king. This is King Xerxes I. Great king of this massive Persian empire, empire that follows the Babylonian and precedes Alexander the Great and the Greek empire, Xerxes I, one of the most powerful men that ever walked the face of this planet. And in the midst of this story, in the midst of this rule of this great man, whom, by the way, you have to read Herodotus to find out uh, how great he was, because the narrator here seems relatively unimpressed with this particular king, there's another drama that's far more important. And it is the drama of a young woman, a Jewish orphan raised by her older cousin, Mordecai. And, of course, her name is Esther. But it just so happens, the beginning of this story, Xerxes I has a little bit of a falling out with his wife, uh, Vashti, the queen of Persia. And he dismisses her. And then, by the way, what Herodotus tells us is between chapter 1 and chapter 2, Xerxes goes off to war in the Greco-Persian Wars, facing uh, an enemy. Uh, he turns the Greeks into an enemy and uh, attacks the great battles of Thermopylae and Salamis, which uh, go very well, actually, for Xerxes. He's got one of the, lar some people, the largest army that's ever mustered, takes the field and the sea, but makes a tactical error at the end because he's just so greedy, he wants to close the deal right now that he's defeated by the, uh, the Spartan sailors. 
And then he comes back with his tail between his legs and uh, realizes ah, there's no wife and is a little bit of a problem. So he sends out his uh, eunuchs, this, uh, the court officials, for a beauty pageant. Gather all the most beautiful women of the Persian Empire for my harem. File them through my bedroom one at a time each night. And the one that I pick will be the queen. It's kind of a horrifying prospect in the midst of this conscription. Esther, this young Jewish woman, is caught up. Now, Mordecai advises Esther, do not, do not let anyone know that you are a Jew. So she holds her identity uh, secretly. Now, it just so happens that around the same time, this is 480 B.C., and Esther is made queen, she's chosen, 479, that there is an elevation of a counselor to Xerxes. His name is Haman. Haman is appointed basically to be prime minister, the counselor above all the other counselors for the whole empire. Haman, unfortunately, has a rather fragile ego. And Haman, as he struts about the palace and passes through the court gate, insists that those who see him give him the honor, do his new position, and bow down before him. As it happens, there's a Jew at the gate by the name of Mordecai, remember Esther's cousin, who refuses to give Haman this honor and will not bow down before him. This enrages Haman. But he's so proud, he says, it's beneath me to cause any harm to come to one person. I'll just wipe out his entire people. And so Haman resorts to some dice. He rolls the dice to make a decision as to how and when he would do this. And a date comes up 11 months from now. Mordecai hears of the decree that on a certain date, all the peoples of Persia are to attack the Jews and leave no survivors. Mordecai is broken in anguish over this and gets word through these ambassadors, these court officials, to his cousin, Esther, and says, Esther, all the Jews, our people, are going to be killed. And now is your decisive moment, this Esther. Maybe this is why you are who you are. You are where you are. You are now in this place. Perhaps for such a time as this, he begs her. What will Esther do? What is the right decision for her to make? She knows you can't just walk into the king's court. There's a law that would prevent that. Anybody who does should be executed. Unless the king would pardon the person by raising his scepter and granting them admittance. She takes the risk. She screws up her courage, asking others to fast. She herself for three days, she then will go into the inner court into the chamber of the king, unbeckoned. And the king raises the scepter and says, you should live, my dear Esther. Now, why do you bother me? She says, well, I, I just have an invitation for you. I just wonder if maybe we could have a banquet together. You, me, and this great man, Haman. And so the king consents and Esther throws a party for these two men. And the king is no dummy. At the end of the evening, he says, okay, what is this all about? What is it really that you want? She says, well, what I really want is to have a banquet with you and this great man tomorrow night again. So she says, okay. He says, okay. So now as it happens, 
Between the two banquets, Xerxes has a bad night, can't sleep. What do you do when you can't sleep? You listen to one of George's sermons. <laughs> or, it's called church, you pull out history. And this is exactly what Xerxes does. He says, go fetch the annals of the Persian kingdom and read to me. So some scribe is reading through this mundane list of royal actions and happens to come across a little section there that reports one day, back a few years, there was a man by the name of Mordecai who overheard two conspirators, two eunuchs in the gate who were going to assassinate Xerxes. Mordecai thought it was the right thing to do to report these two, and he does, and the plot is thwarted. Xerxes' life is saved. So he says, I never knew this. What happened to this man? Was he given proper reward? They say, well, we, we did, just didn't do anything about it. Well, this gets him thinking through the night. Now, it just so happened that as Xerxes is considering what he could do to compensate the man who saved his life, in comes his prime minister, Haman, reporting early for work, sir, this morning, because he's so happy as he skips into the courtyard, he's been invited to another banquet, just him and the great king. And as he does, the, the king is wondering, what would I do to honor Mordecai? And so he puts the question uh, to Haman. He says, what would the king do for a man he wants to honor? Now, Haman just knows that the king is asking, cloaked, about himself. So he says, well, what I would do with, for the man whom the king wants to honor is I would give him one of the king's very own robes. And I would put him on one of the king's very own horses. And then I would have a high-ranking official lead the horse and the man through the entire city of Susa saying, this is what the king does for the man he wants to honor. And Xerxes says, great, would you do that for Mordecai? Haman is mortified. This is, this is humiliating. So he does it, of course, to save his own life. And then he counsels with some of his friends. And they say, there's only one solution to this. You've got to kill Mordecai. So much for what you do for a man the king wants to honor and so much for his own dignity. Now it's no longer beneath him to actually take out an individual. In fact, he's going to do it with style. So uh, Haman builds this huge a gallows, it's called, 50 feet high. It's actually just a spike because the per Persians executed people by impaling them. Sets it up right there at his home, sweet guy that he is. Now, as it happens, at that banquet that evening... Esther outs herself as a Jew, and she outs Haman as the one who would exterminate her people. The king is enraged, can't even tolerate being in the room, rushes out. But Haman throws himself on the couch where Mordecai lies, begging for mercy. And yet as it happens, the king would enter the room just at that moment and assume that Haman is starting to kill Esther just at this moment, and he's, he's, he's enraged. So the eunuchs cover his face, and they decide what to do with Haman. And just then, one of the court officials looks out the window and says, hey, there's a really big spike out there. <laughs> and as it happens, Haman gets impaled on his own gallows, and the king will give to Mordecai and Esther Haman's house and elevate Mordecai. 
The king would then, at Esther's request, issue a second edict, by which, on this particular day, 11 months from now, all the Jews of Israel are permitted to be armed and to defend themselves against anybody who would cause them any harm at all. Esther saves the Jewish race, the whole people. Or is it God who does so? It's interesting is in the whole book of Esther, never once is God's name mentioned. Think of that, a book of the Bible and God is not mentioned, but he's there the whole way through. This is a, a story that teaches us that when God is most absent, he's absolutely present. He's absolutely active, doing the most extraordinary things through the most ordinary of circumstances. And every decision that's made throughout this whole narrative proves, from the reader's perspective, to be a pivotal decision, a defining moment, as is every decision in our lives as well. So now, three implications. The first one is this. Don't find God's will for your life. Do it. Don't find God's will for your life. Do it. So many of us read a story like this or any of the biblical stories and we go, wow, look at how God's so active in people's lives. Look at how purposeful they are. They get to fulfill the destiny for which God has created them. I want that too. If I could only get onto those rails, if I could only get my life onto the God track, if I could only know what it is he wants me to do, who to marry, what job to have, what city to live in, how to get out of bed and get dressed, whatever. You know, what is the, God's plan for my life? And there's no doubt that God has a plan. But to focus on this question is to miss the point of the book of Esther. Esther is associated with a feast called Purim. It's one of the five festal scrolls, the Megilloth that Jews have, that they read during five ceremonies. And Purim is a, cel- a celebration of uh, the deliverance that God gives Israel through Esther's acts. It's usually in February or in March. As a story is read, the crowd whips up, you know, every time Haman's name is read, there's the stomping of feet or the hissing. The word Purim comes from the Akkadian word Pur. It's a transliteration of a word which in the language of Mesopotamia means die, like dice. Purim means dice, therefore, or lots. In other words, the whole meaning of the book is associated with the dice. Now, the character who uses dice in the story is Haman. He, 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 he's using the dice to know what is the future. How is it that I should act? What decision should I make? When we ask that question, we're not asking the question that Esther and Mordecai were asking. We're asking the question that the Persians were asking. You see, in the book of Esther, there are really two models for decision-making. There is decision-making in the palace. Here, the emphasis is to find the right answer. But there's also decision-making at the gate, where here the emphasis is on Put it into action. Let me just briefly unpack this. In the palace, there are two major decisions that are being considered uh, here in the story. The first one is this great banquet. Xerxes is calling all of the officials, the princes, the, the generals from 120 provinces throughout the entire Persian Empire together for a 180-day feast. 
And apparently the Persians thought that alcohol increased discernment. Apparently it doesn't work uh, with respect to his wife. But uh, they're they're there to decide, shall we go to war uh, against the Greeks in the northwest? Shall we uh, expand our power, our prestige in the world by attacking the city-states of Greece? And of course, they decide to do so. The other decision that's prominent here is the decision of Haman, who makes the decision to exterminate the Jews and does so, as I've said, by rolling the purim, the dice. When you're in the palace, you make decisions to preserve your power. When you have power, you live in anxiety because you don't know what the future holds. And if there is no rationale to the future, it's just chance. It's just luck. It's a dog-eat-dog world. And the future goes to the powerful. And, and you try to do whatever you can to mitigate the risks, so you must know what is the right answer. Is this the right thing to do? Because your life is in your own hands. That's the question of the palace. But there's another kind of decision-making in the book, and it's the decision-making that comes from the gate. French archaeologists, actually, in the 1970s, have, actually, have discovered the gate, as 80 yards from the palace, 40 yards across, flanked by giant columns, very impressive. But this was a place where the administrative work of the king was done. This is a place of implementation. The, the authority of the king was applied to particular cases and pr- problems that came before the palace at the gate. The Jewish reader would be very familiar with a custom like this in ancient Israel. Of course, the elders of Israel sat in the gates of any town or village or city. The elders of Israel were those who had walked with the Lord, who knew his uh, Torah, his, his revealed will, and had implemented over time in their lives that they had cultivated within themselves a kind of a wisdom that was to be sought. So if you had a dispute or disagreement, you would come to the gate to, to allow the elders to apply God's truth to your situation. Here the emphasis is not on finding the answer, but it's on putting into action the truth that God has already revealed to us. Philip Carey is a professor uh, at Eastern College, and he talks about his students, Christian college students, who, in his opinion, are, are more anxious about their future precisely because they're preoccupied with the question, what is God's will for my life? As though it was something that they could miss if they, if they get it wrong. And it's a tremendous amount of anxiety over this question. And Kerry helpfully points out that, you know, God's will is kind of diverse. And we can think of God's revealed will, and we can also think of God's providential will. God's revealed will is what he tells us is his will. And he's really, really clear about this. He says, love God and love your neighbor. Okay, there's some other stuff as well, but they're all expansions of that. God's revealed will is really simple. And the question isn't there, can you find it? The question is, will you do it? Will you do it? Will you love God and will you love your neighbor? And then Carrie says, we we ought to think about God's providential will. And this is what we see in the story of Esther so clearly. That God is working through history in very particular ways. But it's hidden. At no point in this story does God ever tell any of the characters, here's what's going to happen and here's the decision you should make accordingly. No, God just does it. It's his hidden providential will. So when you ask God, what is your will for my life? He's going to say, I already told you. And this I'm not going to tell you. My providential will is my business. It doesn't depend on you. It's what I will do. 
So for us, the emphasis is not on finding God's will. It's on doing it. The second implication is this. Do God's will where the good news is most unwelcome. Do it where God's uh, truth, where the grace of Jesus Christ is least welcome. In many ways, Esther and Mordecai are really not exemplary for, for us. When you look at their lives, I mean, Esther is really no Daniel. You know, Daniel who maintained the, the law, the kosher dietary uh, habits while he was in exile. Esther doesn't. She's got no particular concern to identify herself with God's people. You wouldn't know that she's a Jew. She lives just like everybody else. Mordecai, likewise, even when he finds out that Haman is, because he's not bowing, going to threaten his people, continues not to bow to Haman. He's got this kind of pride about him. So a, and then at the end of the story, there's a, there's a little bit of a vindictive response. It makes us uncomfortable, and it ought to make us uncomfortable. And the point is, you're not supposed to model your life after any of these characters. But if there is any connection to our lives, it is in this, and that is that we will all find ourselves in places of moral ambiguity. We will find our places where there is not necessarily a clear-cut, easy decision to make. And this is exactly where we ought to be. This is not possible that Jesus Christ has assigned you to a place like this. That he has put you in a family whose brokenness has made life very complicated. That he has put you in a workplace whose idolatry is very uh, uh, challenging to, to you as a witness for Jesus Christ. Ray Bakke says this, Let Esther's harem represent every unclean political or commercial institution or structure where evil reigns and must be confronted. Believers are needed there. Our cities are full of dens of iniquity. Our culture is described as essentially post-Christian, secular, and often antithetical to biblical values and hostile to biblical virtues. But Esther gives us permission, and I would say a mandate, to reflect on our call to serve God within the matrix of modern secular society. How could God call Esther to be the replacement spouse of a polygamous pagan Persian king? The book is off the screen for many of us, and yet we need Esther now more than ever. God says you move into places where being salt will be noticeable in an unsavory world. Where being light will be visible in a dark world. Those are places where I want you. This is his strategy for the transformation of culture and society. Don't look for those places where the good news is easiest to hold on to. Look for those places where it is hardest. And then finally, number three, don't do your work yourself. Let Jesus do it in you. Don't do it yourself. Let Jesus do it. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I don't know why I constantly want to challenge that. Why I'm so preoccupied with doing everything I possibly can apart from Jesus. The Apostle Paul says, I have learned to do all things in Christ who gives me strength. The whole story points to Jesus from beginning to end. In particular, think about our need for Jesus Christ. Our motives. Esther is a brilliantly courageous woman. She does a bold thing. And yet, we can still ask questions about her motives. 
Mordecai makes a cryptic statement to her. He says, do you think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews? He's saying, hey, the Jews are going to be rescued, but I would watch out for you if you choose not to participate in this. What is that? Is that some kind of a cloaked threat? So he's saying, essentially, you're between a rock and a hard place, and that causes her to act. Now, you and I also uh, compromise our own motives by our self-interest. We may do the heroic thing, as Esther does in this moment, but over time, we get tired of doing that. Over time, uh, our virtue begins to fade. It's just not possible, as Tim Keller says, to move into those places of prestige, to go into the palace every single day and not be seduced by the palace. That place that tells you you are entitled, you are powerful, the prestige, the power, the compensation. The very thing that God gives us in, in, in terms of an opportunity to serve him can become a snare to us if we begin to believe it's about us. What God needs are people who, like Esther, can go into the palace without being formed by the palace and come back out still being uh, distinctive as a person of faith in, in God. That's our need. God's grace is what he does to meet that need. And Mordecai has a sense that God's plan is unstoppable. That God has a plan to give salvation to this whole creation. And Esther, you can choose to participate or not to participate, but I tell you, this plan is not going to be thwarted. God will not be satisfied until his grace is broadly known. And so... The grace of Jesus Christ, of course, depends upon the survival of the Jewish people from whom the Messiah will come, in whom God will make uh, keep his promise that he makes to Abraham to bless the nations through a blessed nation. And it is Jesus who does what you and I cannot do. It is Jesus alone who can go into the palace, who can give up all of his interests in service to the interests of others. Jesus is the one who lives in heaven in itself who does not think equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbles himself, empties himself to serve you and to serve me, gives his interest for ours. So that Jesus is the only one who has ever been able to live and work righteously. And this is exactly what he offers as a gift to you and me. He offers a perfect career. Jesus always does the right thing in his work. He's the mother that you could never be, but always want to be. He's the school teacher that you could never be, but feel called to be. Jesus does it for you. He gives the Father a perfect career in your name. And then he asks you to abide with him, that he might work out his capacity to serve inside of you, so that you might experience the purposes of God in your life and in your work. This is why the Apostle Paul says we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the, the glimpse that we get of your purpose in the book of Esther. It's like you pull back a curtain and allow us to see beyond all the ordinary stuff of our lives, even the horrifying stuff of our lives, that you are at work and that you invite us to do your will. That every moment is a decisive moment 
And that even where we have made the wrong decisions, yet you are able to bring good out of evil and delight to do so. And will again and again for the sake of Jesus Christ. You call us to participate in this inevitable plan to fulfill your desire to share your grace with the world. We pray that you'd help us with faith. Help us in the midst of the crisis of our work to look to Jesus Christ. To do what we do in him. And help us to help each other in that. Thank you for the partnership of Mordecai and Esther. And thank you for the community that we have here. As we remind one another to walk in the good works of Jesus Christ. May it be so this week for each of us. For your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.